Hi, I'm Samuel. And I'm Bentley. And this is the Re-View Podcast. Podcast. Alright, so my view of the canon uh, is that it wraps together lots of different art forms, and so primarily we talk about movies and TV shows here, uh, hence the title that we are reviewing. We're looking again at things, because movies and television really are an art form that we gave to the world, right? Those are American creations. We created movies, uh, we invented the television, um, but I'm going to come at this topic today from music. I'm pretty happy because there's a new Jamiroquai album out. <laughs> and as a child of the 70s who will admit in the light of day that I love disco, you know, Jamiroquai is a pretty big deal to me. He even references disco in some of the tracks on the brand new album that dropped just a few weeks ago in 2017. So my background is uh, Samuel was born in 1992. I wasn't really paying a lot of attention to popular music in the mid-90s because, uh, first of all, it was grunge, which really quickly flattened out into just squall. You know, like, I like Nirvana and some of the first stuff, but it seemed like after a few years of it, I mean, they, people were trying to be unmusical, and I could not listen to it. So I was kind of lost musically. I mean, we were watching Thomas the Tank Engine and things for kids because of Samuel, and I just was kind of out of it. And then... My college roommate, Carl Rosen, hi Carl, says, hey, I know you love disco, I think you should listen to this new guy, Jamiroquai. And he sent me, you know, like the video uh, where Jamiroquai is standing in that small white room and he's kind of moving around and I could hear that he was sounding a lot like Stevie Wonder, so that reminded me of the 70s, it was clearly a reboot of disco. Uh, in the mid-90s, late 90s, uh, the Spice Girls come along, and it's all sort of this reboot of this great funk that I grew up with. So I was pretty happy, but I didn't jump on to Jamiroquai right away. It was like, okay, thanks, Carl. I'm glad you told me about it. But, you know, I was spending money on, on all this kids' stuff, and that's what I was listening to. So I didn't really start buying Jamiroquai until later, and one of the things that really sealed it for me was he was on the soundtrack of... Titan A.E. Oh! We think Titan A.E. should be part of the canon. Maybe not the canon canon, but certainly the sci-fi canon. Oh, yeah. Totally. Well, I'm crazy enough that I, like, I had a friend recently uh, who asked me, what's your soul movie, Samuel? And I was like, what is that? That sounds awesome. That sounds like a really cool concept. <laughs> right. And she said to me that the soul movie is something that maybe... If you were to pull back and look at it objectively, it might not be the greatest thing in the universe, but for some reason, you are your adolescence is defined by it. Your your childhood is defined by yeah. it. And for me, Titan E is my soul movie. It is. It mm. is. Uh, it's not a perfect film, and it hurts to say that because <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is, and you are all just wrong. Um, <laughs> But well, it is it is a product of its time. It is a product of the brilliant mind and animation stylings of Don Bluth. It is a perfect little slice of science fiction in 90 minutes. Uh, it's easily accessible, but it still has those deeper themes that I like. It is a post-apocalyptic narrative at its heart. It has characters who are, again, as we've talked about on previous podcasts, Tropes are in every story. Clichés are tropes done badly. This thing is full of tropes, but it executes these tropes really 
well. And these characters are people that I've grown up with. And let me put it to you this way. I'll sum all this up. I have never in my life ever considered or been interested in getting a tattoo except for the one that the main character has on his arm in this movie, which is a sword surrounded by thorns. And it means nothing to his character, but I love it. <laughs> so I got to say that as Samuel's parent, I understood how important it was to him when it hit. Okay, and we'll get into the movie itself here in just a minute. This whole podcast basically is devoted to Samuel and this movie. It actually does not mean that much to me, <laughs> except that I love what it meant to him. I knew right away when he watched it, and then his brother watched it, it was a big, big deal to them. So my idea for this podcast is that it's not just me talking to him and trying to convince you listeners of the canon. It is a two-way street. And so there are things that we're going to talk about that are much more important to Samuel where he's teaching me. And Titan AE is one of those things. I mean, I liked the movie uh, well enough. I liked the soundtrack, which was on constant rotation in our house. Constant. But it means much more to Samuel than it does to me. And I'm going to let him spend most of this podcast making that case. So Titan AE is... Uh, and again, this uh, I've had a chance to uh, crystallize a lot of my thoughts on this film thanks to very recent conversations I had with a good friend of mine. And I just realized that it... it, it and she knows more about the history of animation than I do. Mm. It comes at this perfect moment where animation is in total flux. Okay. Computer animation is on the rise. Yeah. Toy Story has been out. Uh, really? Pixar. What? Wait, so when this is, is the setup? When does... So, okay, the setup is Titan A is released in the year 2000. And but when it's, is... When is Toy Story? The first Toy Story is like 93, isn't it? No, it's way later than that. No. Shut your mouth. 1995. Okay, so 95. And also, you know, the first time in major uh, animation that we see the computer graphics, of course, is the dancing ballroom scene of Beauty and the Beast. That's the really famous example of here's what computers can do in a major motion picture. Mm -hmm. So the fully 3D animated stuff is on the rise, but we haven't hit Shrek yet. This is pre-Shrek. Okay. Very important to note. Uh, DreamWorks is kind of starting to be a force, but it's not quite there yet. Uh, Disney is still making traditional 2D animated movies. I mean, all this stuff is in flux, but 3D is coming. So Titan A.E., how does that compare to Tarzan? Because I actually really liked the 2D Tarzan movie that Disney did. So I think the 3D usage in Titan A.E. is a lot more sophisticated than it is in uh, Tarzan. Because Tarzan utilizes the 3D mostly for when he's sliding down those like tree trunks and doing yeah. like the surfer moves on the vines. Which yeah. I think is really cool. Yeah. But it's not used as much as... like. Titan A is so, and I keep, I, I have abused this word, and I will continue to abuse this word, it is elemental, it is primal. It is, the main characters, human, alien, whatever, are 2D animated, hmm. usually against a 3D background or interfacing with 3D objects. The bad guys of this film are entirely animated in three dimensions, and that is not a mistake. Hmm. Don Bluth sees what the future is. He sees what is going to happen, and he is making one last-ditch attempt to say, maybe we can just, maybe we can have both. Maybe we can meld these two styles of animation instead of making it all-or-nothing game. And he loses that fight. Yeah, he does. And because 3D animation is still transcendent. I don't know if we're ever going to see another boom of 2D animation. No, no, we won't. It's, it's we won't, too late. Sadly. 3D's too cheap. It's too <laughs> well, easy. 
the, um, to me, the real watershed was that they made a 3D computer-generated Peanuts movie. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no, it's I, over. I'm a cartoonist because of Peanuts, okay? Uh, I wrote to Schultz when I was a kid. I still have the letter that his secretary sent back, you know, which he never saw and he didn't sign. But you know what? I held it because it was a piece of him. Peanuts was huge when I was growing up, and there is no more 2D storytelling in cartooning than Peanuts. Yeah. It is as flat as you can possibly get. Yeah, just circles. Right, and so now that they've done a 3D uh, Peanuts movie and it did very well, I still haven't seen it because I can't watch it. Yeah. I cannot watch a 3D Peanuts. But the meta text of Titan A.E., which I usually try and leave out when I regard something because I don't like to, to mix that stuff in. I don't believe in degree of difficulty, giving points. Like for, for Oh, that's pe- funny. I do. Oh, because people <laughs> like love Cloud Atlas because they're like, oh, it's so ambitious. No one's ever attempted a, a story like this on film before. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't care about these characters. Like, I, I okay. you know. But that's an example. But I think the meta narrative around Titan AE is so incredible because it's at such a unique moment of time. This is an apocalyptic moment for 2D animation, especially on film. So that's the animation thing. But I want to also talk about, before we jump into the uh, narrative itself, I want to talk about where it fits in Star Wars timeline. Yeah, yeah. When I'm watching this, I'm like, oh, they did a cartoon Star Wars. Yes. So this is before any of the Clone Wars stuff comes out. And interestingly enough, Episode one has come out. So Star Wars has come roaring back. Uh, you know, Samuel and I went to see all the special edition stuff that happened in 97. And that, of course, leads to the first prequel. Episode one comes out in 99. Mm-hmm. And then you have Titan AE. And I'm like, well, it's kind of interesting that we have a Star Wars movie when Star Wars is already back. Like, Titan AE would have made sense to me in our culture if it had come out in 95. Yeah. When there was no Star Wars no in the Star movie Wars. theater. Yep. But it clearly is a Star Wars movie, isn't it? Yeah, it's clearly a Star Wars movie. It is far more science fantasy um, than, or space fantasy than it is science fiction. Right. And that's what I've always been drawn to. I mean, I like Trek. I do. But I don't have the love for it that I have for Star Wars. You know, right. I don't care what the gravitational force of the Death Star is. I, I don't care about that stuff. Right. And neither does Titan A.E. Titan A.E. cares about a very human story about individuals fighting against... An apocalypse that has already happened and is merely just going to complete itself if their efforts are in vain. Okay. Um, so let me pause there. Yeah, and, pause and... me whenever you need to because I'll just go. <laughs> so I want you to try and recover. Let's see. So if this comes out in 2000. Yeah, I'm probably still on paper seven years old. But I'm going to turn eight that year. Okay, so can you give us a sense of what seven or eight-year-old Samuel thought upon first viewing? Well, Because you had seen the Star Wars stuff. To go back to Star Wars, I had seen, I had had the very incredible privilege of being able to see the special editions of the original trilogy and Episode 1 on the big screen. On the big screen, yeah. And I remember liking Episode 1. I mean, I was the target audience for Episode 1. Yeah, you were. Seven years old. I remember talking... (laughs) Fart jokes! ...with you, and I want to say, I think it was John Schaefer, talking talking about... um, Mark Schaefer. Mark Schaefer. Sorry, losing my mind. I'm combining your two friends, um, <laughs> uh, Mark Schaefer, about Jar Jar. I like Jar Jar. You know, I was seven years old. Hey, hey, come here. Uh, no, you didn't really slap me. Don't worry, folks. Um, but I, you know, and and that was all I I was like looking for, you know, and that was fun, and I liked it, and I liked Anakin, I liked that he had the pod racer thing, and that was all fun. And I so see- how can you then like Titan AE, which is uh, more adult themes? The post-apocalyptic is different than what you see in Episode One. Why did that mean something to you? I think I really liked... uh, Because episode one is not really a story about 
or it's a poorly done story about fathers and sons. You know, it's not... Qui-Gon's kind of a parental figure to mm. Anakin, sorry, mm. kind of to Obi-Wan, but not really. Like, it's not... No, it's that, that theme is really bungled. It's really bungled. Like, they're trying to go for it. It's not quite there. Mm. And, you know, I loved... It's so hard for me to put myself back in that place, but I think I really love Titan A.E., uh, partially because of the soundtrack. Jamiroquai! Jamiroquai and Electrasi and uh, Lit, L-I-T. Um, <laughs> you know, these are all horrible bands that you can only f go and see if you take one of those 90s cruises through the Caribbean. And they... <laughs> Shut up, that stuff is all still on your iPod. Oh, totally. And, and it has some of the... If you sort my library at iTunes by play count, almost all of it is right at the top. <laughs> <laughs> so like look i i can't it's so difficult for me to put myself back in that place but it was you know at, when you're turning eight you're kind of obsessed with being perceived as a grown-up because sure. you're old enough to understand sure. now that there is a separation between what you can do yeah when you're five you don't perceive it as between you and grown-ups you think you can do everything yeah when you're eight you have begun to realize that there is an adult world you're not an adolescent yet so you don't have angst. But you're also not a preschooler. You're not right? a preschooler. Yeah, the other thing is, is you're getting into what we now have termed in our culture, you know, preteens. Yeah. Right? I mean, that, that, that's, when I was growing up, that was not recognized as a separate stage. Yeah. But it is now. So, yeah, yeah you're coming into being a preteen. Yeah, and you're trying, and, and you are beginning, because I think most of this happens in your teenage years, but you are beginning, beginning, to formulate an identity. Of yeah. who you are. Mm -hmm. When you're five years old, you don't have an identity. Your identity is screaming and, and whatever. And mac and cheese. And mac and cheese. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> but when you're eight, you're starting to find things that help define who you are. Okay, so why did you gravitate huh, to tighten the eat? I think I, I, I really like uh, the relationship between Kale and Corso. And I think that's... Right, well, tell us who they are in case people... So, so for, for those of you heathens who haven't watched Titan AE yet, first off, pause this, go watch it, then come back. No, no, no. we have to make the case so that okay. they do go watch it. Okay, so the case is go watch it. No. Um, so <laughs> And the end of the podcast. Thank, thank you thank for joining us. Thank you for joining us. This has been the Review Podcast. No. Um, so, first <laughs> it, off, it, to set the narrative stage... It tell us who plays them, because that, that's interesting. Yeah, so this is also coming at a really interesting point in terms of Hollywood, because... You know, Harrison Ford is starting to get older. He's not yeah. cast as the action hero anymore. Nope. Uh, Bruce Willis is getting older. Yeah. We need new action heroes. Well, I think in, by the year 2000, Bruce doesn't have any hair. Yeah. So, now, yeah, he's... Still very sensitive about that, apparently, in real life. Oh, is he? Oh, yeah. No, you don't mention the baldness. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but, so this is one of the earliest starring roles in any capacity, animated, live action, whatever, for Matt Damon. Matt Damon! <laughs> Like, it's and it's a perfect role for him because he is an outsider. He has a chip on his shoulder. Um, he is very stereotypical, kind of like, he's supposed to be in, like, his late teens, early 20s, but he's really a 14-year-old, you know? He's yeah. really, um, you know, I think I like this film a lot as well because you know who I was friends with in real life? Hmm. Jesse Mueller. Yeah. And you know who reminds me a lot of Jesse Mueller is Kale in this movie. Oh, okay. And I think there's a lot there. Um <laughs> But this is not a psychoanalysis podcast yet. We'll get to those later. Um, but I, I don't know. It's so. I, I like I like Kale, who's the young man, who's kind of he's the chosen one, but he's not, you know, a Mary Sue. He's not perfect. He makes a lot of mistakes over the course of this movie. He learns uh, a lot maybe. of lessons. Quick timeout. You got to explain what a Mary Sue is. Oh, 
so Mary Sue, uh, and I, I even hesitate to use that term because it has sexist connotations now. But that's the term, isn't it? It is the term, unfortunately. Um, uh, male versions, if you're, uh, are sometimes referred to as Gary Stews. Gary Which is, my character is perfect, and they're the protagonist, and they're the chosen one, and they don't make mistakes, and all the established characters love who they are. It comes from conversations in 1970s Star Trek fan fiction that were discussed in like the Star Trek fan fiction newsletter where they were getting a lot of submissions from fanfic authors who were just like, my character is young, and all the characters love who they are, and they're perfect in every way. Hmm. And it's, it's, it's taken on a whole new life, and I, I, tr I try not to use it at this point, but I can use it here because it's not what Kale is. Mm -hmm. Kale makes a lot of mistakes. Kale is not perfect. He is the chosen one, but... He's he's not he's not a chosen one who earns everyone's respect for being the chosen one. He earns right. people's respect because he has a certain section of skills that he's practiced at, mm -hmm. and what he doesn't know, he doesn't really attempt, or he defers to the experts on. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's really powerful to see that uh, as a young person to see mm -hmm. teamwork going on. I mean, my brother is three years old when this movie comes out, mm. and I. Uh, once again, emotional spoilers. I don't really have a lot of, like... I've never really had a lot of fights with my brother. Mm. Uh, we have always had to work as a team. That's who we are. I look out for him. He looks out for me. I don't know. That's not what he says. <laughs> shut, shut up! No! And so, no, that's just a joke. They're great brothers. They're uh, great brothers. And, you know, I go to bat for him on anything, and he'll go to bat for me on anything. And But at, at you know, at three, he doesn't... Know any of that, and at no, eight, no. I don't know any of that. You know, no, but no. he I... clearly loves this movie because Samuel loves it, right? This is something. Well, so I've taught Samuel a bunch of stuff in the canon, and of course, Samuel has because there was five years between he and his brother. Samuel has taught his brother stuff. Well, Truman also loves this movie because it has one of the most like sickest <laughs> neck breaks that's ever yeah. existed in history. If you've never seen Titan A.E., I suspect you've seen a GIF of this neck break somewhere on some forum. Because I, I won't spoil what character it is, because that is actually kind of a big spoiler, but Corso, who is Kale's like mentor and teacher and paternal figure, is trying to snap this alien's neck, and so he's exerting all his force trying to go left, and the alien exerting all of his force on his head trying to go right, and suddenly Corso reverses the pressure that he's trying to exert and says, oh, no, I'm going to head with you, I'm going to go right. And that dude's head just goes like a corkscrew. And you're just like, oh, this movie's rated PG? How did they do that? Oh, my God. And <laughs> yeah, is, this is a movie for children. Oh, what? my God. And it's done. Uh, Don Bluth is so good at getting those little moments of human expression in between action. Hmm. A lot of animated stuff, 2D, 3D, puppet animation, doesn't matter will not give characters expression in the middle of actions yeah. between yeah. doing things. Because it's hard. Yeah. That's They'll hard to do. They'll sit there and you'll say words and their arms will be folded and their expression will be blank. They will not be reacting to what is said. Yeah. All of Don Bluth's films, and I'm borderline crying thinking about this, when people are talking in presence with other characters, other characters are shifting their weight. Other characters are cocking their heads. Yeah, because that's what humans do. That's what humans do. We fidget. We're fidgety things. We don't like standing right. in place too long. That's the lizard brain telling yeah. you you need to move. Yeah. And just like when he throws this bad guy who's betrayed them down the stairs, there is such a look of disdain on Corso's face. It's just hmm. like, ha ha, human beat you again. Like, hmm. it's unbelievable. They hmm. exude, each of these characters exudes 
character. They have personality, and it is not just the voice acting, which is exemplary. It's not just the script with contributions by Joss Whedon. Ooh. It is an incredible character study through the non-verbals. Wait, 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 wait. Time out, time yeah. out. So Joss Whedon is doing Buffy before this. Yes. Buffy's in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is this like the first movie, first theatrical movie he does? Look at him on... Uh... IMDb. Uh, I, IMDb him. Well, he did uncredited rewrites. It's only come out oh, into light I see. that he has done. Um, but is, so is Josh Sweden, for anybody who, who doesn't know exactly where you've heard that term, I mean, he's the guy who basically gets the Marvel Universe pumped up into high gear, right? He's a very well respected writer, um, and he got started really with Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the 90s, the TV show. But what does he do for... So he does uncredited rewrites on Toy Story, but that's that's uh-huh. um, that's in 95. His big uh, writing credit, I mean, he does Alien Resurrection. Oh, Alien Resurrection comes before He does this. Atlantis right. Lost Empire, which is right after this. I mean, he does... He's really given a lot of these, these uh, late 90s balls to run with, I mean... Yeah, and a lot of people uh, love the cult hit Firefly, which was also on TV, but Titan A.E. comes before Firefly. Well, and not to segue too far away from Titan A.E., but you can see Joss Whedon, he prototypes Firefly twice before Firefly exists as it is. The first prototype is an Aliens Resurrection. There is a crew of smugglers in that, yeah. in that film, god-awful as it is, and we will have to cover it on an Aliens podcast, <laughs> um... God awful as that film is, where that are clearly the Firefly crew. Firefly like, crew, yeah, yeah. Clearly, and he does some of that same stuff again in Titan. A. He's trying to figure out what Firefly is supposed to be, right. Using it's, other people's toys, right. And so what's interesting is, so uh, I, as a Gen Xer, I mean, I have all kinds of friends who just keep moaning on social media about Firefly. Like they want another season, they want it to be rebooted, they want a theatrical movie of it. You know, I mean, there are a lot of people. My friends who just dearly love Firefly. Well, guess what, kids? If you want to see more Firefly, watch Take Nae. Yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent. I mean, it's it's it, it. So it's directed by Don Bluth and Gary Goldman, but it's it's clearly Don's movie. Uh, it's clearly his baby. Uh, apparently, the screenplay did exist in some early form for something else, but you know he really takes the ball and runs with it. And, you know, it is a movie about legacy. It is a movie about uh, fathers and sons. It is also a movie about, well, when do you stop fighting? When Mm. is the battle really lost? Hmm. And, you know, Corso asks this question throughout the film in multiple different guises. He basically says, you remind me a lot of your father. You got a lot of his spirit. I don't know if this is the fight you want to take on. This is a fight hmm. to save humanity. Because the, the plot, and we try not to go into plot too much in the podcast, because if you want, you can always just look that stuff up. But basically, the world has been, in the first, before the credits have rolled, they have blown up the world. Mm. Uh, these aliens called the Dredge. Earth. Yes, yes. <laughs> the, it, it, these A-E aliens, means after, after Earth. After Earth. By the way. <laughs> uh, and so the Dredge have come down in all their 3D glory and just ripped the Earth in two, destroyed the moon, everything. And, and humans are now literally dying out. They are scattered across the universe in small colonies. Hey, wait a minute. This is Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and, but, so they're searching for a new home. The, basically, the thesis of the movie is that 
Humanity needs a home. Humanity needs a meeting place. How about they that? Need, they need so <laughs> it all. It's all connected, folks. It's all connected. We need a fireside to gather around as a species. Yeah. Even if we disagree on everything else, we need a shared home that we all have a stake in. Right. And the closest thing that humanity has to that right now is uh, it's called Drifter Colony. And it's made, uh, I mean, basically, the aliens of the universe view us as vagrants, as hobos, you know, where mm -hmm. we come in and we leech off them and then we leave, you know? Mm. So Kale is very, you know, he's pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. He works in an alien mind and calling. He's got a huge chip on his shoulder because everybody there hates him. Mm. And Corso kind of comes out of the blue, one of his father's old colleagues, and says, look, I think you're the key to finding something that can literally create out of thin air a new earth. Mm. And... I need you to do it. I can't do it without you. And Corso is not, you know, he's he's a former military guy. He's a smuggler now. He is very much in the dirty nastiness of this galaxy, but he's not Han Solo. He is What's the difference? Han Solo has one partner. Uh, Corso has a crew. Corso is already a father to this crew. Okay. Han Solo is not paternalistic with Chewie. They no. are brothers. Yes, that's right. Or Chewie's, you know, the dog. No, you know? you're right, you're right. Um, Corso is already the head of this group of misfits and losers. Mm. And mm. taking on Kale is not an additional burden to him. It is a joy to him. Mm. Um, it is some, someone who he can see the future in. Okay. And I think that's really powerful. And, and there's a scene where he hands over the controls of his ship to Kale, and they fly through this beautiful asteroid belt, and, um, oh, five-second note, the sound design in this movie is crazy good. Mm. There is a scene where they are navigating through an ice field, like, there's just these chunks of ice colliding with each other, and the behind-the-scenes documentary on that is awesome, because they had to find the right kind of snow to crunch the right kind of boot on to get that grinding, metallic, icy mm. effect for those collisions, mm. and that took them, like, months to get that right and it's just wait, awesome wait, what does that have to do with jamiroquai okay anyway so the soundtrack <laughs> we'll bring it back to where my dad started us off the soundtrack <laughs> is interspaced in this movie it is not all the music in the film is uh non uh help me out here non-dialectic -di didactic oh you mean not, it doesn't talk about the plot. it's not in the mise-en-scene it's not in the film you're not hearing right. this on a radio yeah yeah it is like in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, yeah. Um, you are here. You're just hearing it as as you hear music most of the time in movies, which is as a track that the characters can't hear. Yeah, characters can't hear, but we get it as the audience. I struggle yeah. to remember a single note of the score of this movie, but okay. I can tell you that the exact points at which every song on the soundtrack is deployed. And you thought that was successful? Oh God, it's awesome. When I had. Uh, and I suppose this ambition's never gone away, but when I was really seriously considering becoming a director and going to VCU film school, that was the kind of thing I wanted to do. I want to interspace mm. my love of music and the, the sounds that you have taught me mm -hmm. with the film. Because, you know, I was always confused when films would, like, deploy maybe, like, one song in a movie. Yeah, well, That's so like, the person who changed that, of course, was Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, God, I love <laughs> you, know, you know, in the 80s, you got movies, uh, certainly there were a few that were movies about music, like Footloose, that Dirty were saturated, yeah. Dirty Dancing, that were saturated with pop songs, and that made sense because they tied to the plot. But, you know, beyond that, you know, yeah, you would, you would have movies that had a score and maybe one pop song that kind of jumped out at you, but, but T really made that different. You know, Pulp Fiction just saturated with music yeah. that doesn't quite fit the plot but does add some juice yeah and and titan a deploys that 
expertly. I mean, it uses um, Cosmic Castaway, which might be my personal theme song still, you know, as Kale is totally alone in the void, cutting open these pieces of space junk, like... Uh, the way I can sell you guys on this movie, aside from just this half an hour of me gushing about it, is that I will still utilize elements of this movie to define who I am as a person. I listen to Cosmic Cast Castaway as like an introspective track, and it's not an introspective track. I mean, yeah. it's it's a it's a weird pop rock thing, but I have defined myself by that song. And when I'm angry at somebody, I will occasionally seriously call them a drifter colony bum. <laughs> which is something that Kale calls, dismissively calls other people. You know, he's, uh, nobody gets it, but I feel good because I've insulted them and yeah. I don't get any beef because they don't know what I mean. Well, so when we talk about the canon and what's important, that is automatically a story of comparison. You have to compare to say, well, this should be in and this is out. So yeah. I recognize that Guardians of the Galaxy was a huge smash hit for Marvel, but it was very hard for me to get excited about it because it felt a lot like Titan AE, yeah, quite I, frankly. I view, I don't think there is a world, uh, whether James Gunn, the director of uh, Titan AE, I'm sorry, not Titan AE, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, will admit this or not, I don't think there's a world where that film exists, certainly not as it is, without Titan AE. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, you have to... It's got elements of it in there. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it, it's... See, now that I think about it, boy, there's a lot of parallels, actually, between that and Titan A.E. Perhaps there's another podcast in yeah, there. Yeah, but... But we should wrap this up by by saying... Uh, I'll give you the final word for, okay. for making the case that this should be in the canon, and then I'll have my final word. Okay. So, Titan A.E. is a story about family. It is a story about fathers and sons. It is gorgeously animated. The sound and soundtrack are both beautiful. Uh, it is in my personal canon because of what it has meant to me. And the way that it views humanity after all hope seems lost, but isn't truly gone. And that's why I would recommend it. Also, go and download the soundtrack. <laughs> and that's my final word. I love the message of Titan AE because it says, When the planet blows up and we are scattered into space, we're taking disco with us. Oh, yes, we are, baby. Everybody's going to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> Love it, baby. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening to us and talk about Titan AE. This has been the Review Podcast. Podcast.